Mark um, this season. I invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. We'll be looking at the first 30 verses of Mark chapter 8. As we turn our attention to God's word, following Jesus, listening to his words, observing his actions, before we do so, let's pray. God, our Father, may your word be our rule, your Holy Spirit, our teacher, and the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our primary concern. In your name we pray. Amen. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 30. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them and also, also, and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly I tell you, no sign will be given it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. 
Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I have with me this morning my favorite childhood book, J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. And I'm curious by show of hands, how many of you have read this book? Okay, a fair few. Keep your hands up. How many of you have seen the movie? Okay. Now, you can put your hands down. Now, there is no shame in this next question. I'm actually hoping this will be true of some of you. How many of you have never read the book or seen the movie? Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. I really recommend it. It's a good book. My grandma DeVries's rule of thumb, you know, you can read books that are shorter than the Bible because if you read a book longer than the Bible, then you should have read the Bible alongside of it. This book's shorter than the Bible, so you can read it uh, during Lent alongside of your Bible readings. J.R.R. Tolkien, a contemporary of C.S. Lewis, um, certainly writes with, with an eye towards the truth in Scripture. And I want to read you one particular passage from The Hobbit. And this passage will make varying levels of sense to you depending on how familiar you are with The Hobbit, with the story. And this is the first time that Bilbo Baggins, The Hobbit, encounters Smaug, the dragon. You seem familiar with my name, but I don't seem to remember smelling you before, said Smaug. Who are you, and where do you come from, may I ask? You may indeed, said Bilbo. I come from under the hill. And under the hills and over the hills my path led, and through the air I am he that walks unseen. So I can well believe, said Smaug, but that is hardly your usual name. I am the clue finder, the web cutter, the stinging fly. I was chosen for the lucky number. Lovely titles, sneered the dragon, but lucky numbers don't always come off. I am he that buries his friends alive and drowns them and draws them alive again from the water. I came from the end of a bag, but no bag went over me. Those don't sound so creditable, scoffed Smaug. I am the friend of bears and the guest of eagles, Bilbo continued. I am ring winner and luck wearer. I am barrel rider, went on Bilbo, beginning to be quite pleased with his riddling. If you know who the hobbit is, where he came from, and who sent him, then everything that Bilbo just said to Smaug makes perfect sense. And in fact, the the clues aren't even that cryptic. They're, They're kind of obvious. But if you don't know who he is, where he came from, or who sent him, or for what purpose he's there, then all of those clues are just these random disparate threads in a tapestry that you can't quite make sense of. 
If you know who he is, then it all seems to come together with remarkable clarity. But when we don't know who Bilbo is or what he's done, then nothing that he says quite comes into focus. It doesn't make sense. Jesus, like Bilbo Baggins, has been giving hints of who he is by his words, by his actions, by his teaching about the kingdom, done so in parables that are often hard to understand for those who are hearing them. This has been happening throughout the Gospel of Mark, and yet up to this point, no one except for the demons have given a clear articulation of who Jesus is, where he came from, who sent him, and what his purpose is. It's just almost riddles to some. And groups like the Pharisees are wanting more. They need more clues. They need a sign from heaven to make it clear who Jesus is to them. So after the feeding of the 4,000, the healing of a blind man at Bethsaida, Jesus turns his attention to his disciples and wants to see if they're becoming more clear on who he is or if everything that he's done and said up to this point is still just a foggy mystery of clues to them. So first he asks them the easy question, who do people say that I am? Other people say that I am. Not your personal opinion just yet, just report on the consensus that you've heard. And there's some things that have been said about Jesus. Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others say one of the prophets. Now, John and Elijah, at this point, are both dead. And so it's interesting that there's an assumption in the public that Jesus is the reincarnation of someone great from the past. But the truth is even more wild. Jesus is not the reincarnation of someone else, but Jesus is the incarnation of Almighty God. Jesus is God made flesh. He is not someone else. He is God himself. No one has said this yet. Jesus didn't start the conversation to debate which deceased prophet that he's most likened to among the general public. Jesus wants a step further with his disciples. And so he asks them, What about you? Who do you say I am? This is the real question. If we're asked, who do other people say that I am, there's maybe some easier answers we could give that are acceptable and have a lot of consensus. That Jesus was a moral teacher, a famous religious figure, a historical martyr. But that's not Jesus' question. His question now is, who do you say I am? And Peter speaks up and says, you are the Christ. Meaning, you are the Messiah. You are the Savior. You are the Son of God sent into the world. Peter gets it. In this moment, he has remarkable clarity, and he gets the answer to the million-dollar question 100% right. Who do you say I am? You are the Christ. Peter is a disciple a follower of Jesus, just like you and I are disciples, followers of Jesus. And Peter has seen the signs. 
He's spent time with Jesus. He's learned from Jesus. He's listened to Jesus' teaching, and he's had it explained to him. And therefore, he confidently professes his faith. You are the Christ. A life of discipleship leads us to always be growing in our understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done, both in our reading of Scripture, in our seeing of who Jesus is as testified in in the Bible, and also in our own lives, looking, observing. What has Jesus done in your life that has shaped your understanding of who Jesus is? But this isn't a one-and-done sort of thing. It's part of our life. It's why we keep worshiping together, why we don't just get the answer right once and call it good. We keep worshiping together. We keep reading our Bibles. We keep praying. We keep studying. Peter gets the answer right, 100%, A+. But he's not done growing in his relationship with Christ. In just a few short verses after this declaration where Peter gets it right and we rejoice with him, a few verses later, Jesus is going to say to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Peter will keep making mistakes. And so will we. But discipleship, following Christ, is not something that we reach a certain level and plateau and call it good and say that we're finished. A life of discipleship is a continued growth in our relationship with Christ. And our own testimonies, like Peter's, probably include moments of remarkable clarity. We hear those shared when we share our testimonies. There are moments of remarkable clarity where everything made sense. It wasn't just cryptic clues, but we saw so clearly who God was and what God has done. But there are also seasons of confusion and doubt. But all of this is on the continued growth in our relationship with Christ. All of this is part of our discipleship. Consider how far Peter has to go before he preaches his sermon at Pentecost, and yet even after that, he will make mistakes. A similar way, consider a marriage. We don't stop learning about our spouses at I do. We continue to learn because relationships take time and investment and we learn a lot about each other as we journey through life. Peter's confession marks a moment of incredible clarity for him where all that Jesus had said and done makes sense. You are the Christ. Peter understands who Jesus is, where he came from, and is beginning to understand his purpose but it's an ongoing process of growth and faith and trust. The blind man at Bethsaida in our text this morning is such a perfect example of what's happening in chapter 8. Did it seem strange to anyone else that it took Jesus two tries to get the man's sight fully restored? Because we've already seen Jesus throughout the Gospels just saying the word or laying a hand on someone, and they've been completely healed. And now here, he does one thing that's peculiar. He spits in the man's eyes, which we haven't seen that before. And it takes him two tries. I see people, but they look like trees walking around. 
which also indicates this man was not born blind, because otherwise how would he know what people or trees walking around could possibly look like? The story of healing, I believe, is historically true, that Jesus really did heal a blind man on the way to Bethsaida. But of all the things that Jesus has done, Mark is very careful to include this story because it's a story of, of clarity growing. The story of healing is right between the disciples having a lack of understanding, a lack of faith even, and a perfect confession of who Jesus is given by Peter. The disciples, like this blind man, are gaining clarity of who Jesus is. Jesus keeps working with the blind man until his sight is perfectly restored. Jesus, in his infinite patience, keeps working with us until our faith is made into sight. Jesus keeps working with us. He sticks with us until the good work that he has began in us is brought to completion. Even when we're confused, even when we make mistakes, even when we go through seasons that are difficult. Jesus keeps working with the blind man until his sight is full. And our life of discipleship is a continued growth until Jesus calls us home and makes us perfect into his likeness. Jesus has fed 4,000 people. He didn't feed them because they could answer all the questions right he didn't feed them because they understood everything that he was teaching them. He didn't feed them because they had all the right answers. He fed them because he had compassion on them and wanted them to have strength for their journey. He fed them, and following this amazing story of feeding people once again, he's fed the 5,000 and now the 4,000. After all of this, Jesus runs into... If there ever was a group of people that you could liken to Smaug the dragon, Jesus runs into the Pharisees. After feeding 4,000 people, the Pharisees corner Jesus and they ask him for a sign. He fed them. Give us a sign from heaven. This is their test. Doesn't it seem strange that they're asking for a sign? Haven't they heard what Jesus has done? Haven't they seen the witnessing of all these people who have been fed? And the Pharisees ask for a sign. No sign will be given it, says Jesus. Jesus has given lots of signs. But he doesn't perform on demand. When the Pharisees say jump, Jesus does not jump. Jesus has given them a sign already, but they don't understand. People in our world are also looking for a sign of who Jesus is. They might be looking to you, looking to the church, wondering who Jesus is. Who do people say North Holland is? People want signs in the same way that the Pharisees want signs. And most of the time, the signs that we want, even for ourselves, we'd really appreciate some clear handwriting up in the sky. But that's not how Jesus interacts with the Pharisees, and it's not how he interacts with the world today. 
The sign has been given of feeding 4,000 people. What signs of the kingdom are shown right here in this place? Are people being fed? Is food being sent across the street? Are people being cared for? Do we welcome and invite? And do we inspire each other towards continued growth? Is a missional church engaged in its community, seeking to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, care for the downtrodden, and intentionally share the love of Jesus through compassion-filled hospitality? Are these signs enough? Are we faithful in giving the signs, not the ones that are asked for, but the ones that are faithful? Who do people say I am? Who do you say that I am? As we enter into the season of Lent, which is a time of preparation and of self-reflection and of repentance, it's worth asking ourselves the same question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say I am? How would you answer that question? And not just with your words, but with your actions. Where in your heart do you respond to Jesus? Is it by our words and by our actions that we confess that Jesus is the Christ and also live in such a way that we testify to who Christ is and what he has done? Who do we say Jesus is by our own lives? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.